Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. We believe all survivors should have access to justice and resources to help them heal from the trauma of sexual abuse. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. Join us as we talk with survivors and various community members who are taking action to normalize the conversation around sexual abuse in the pursuit of justice and healing. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, welcome to Support for Survivors. I'm your host, Shaughnessy Terrell. Joining us today is Courtney Curtis, Assistant Executive Director of the Indiana Prosecuting Attorneys Council. Courtney wears many hats in her service to Indiana's prosecutors. She'll get into that a little bit more in a second. Prior to joining the Reichs at IPAC, Courtney was a longtime deputy prosecuting attorney. She has tried hundreds of juries to completion. She's experienced in working on cases of all kinds and is an expert in crimes of sexual and domestic violence. She is so impressive, in fact, that she travels across the United States to help the National District Attorneys Association to train prosecutors from all 50 states. She is such an esteemed speaker that she was the inaugural recipient of the NDAA Distinguished Faculty Award and has actually even been nominated again since then. You may recognize her from an earlier episode we did regarding race and sexual assault. She is officially the first guest to be on the podcast twice. We are very honored that she has taken the time to be here today. Welcome, Courtney. Thanks for having me. Of course. Good to see you. Good to see you. (laughs) Yep, yep. Even if it's Zoom, it's still something. So I know that you were on an earlier episode, but it was a while ago. So can you just remind everybody what IPAC is? IPAC, obviously short for the Prosecuting Attorneys Council, and um, what your role is there, IPAC? Sure. So primarily, IPAC is a training organization. Um, There are 92 counties in the state of Indiana, but 91 circuits. There's one circuit that has two different counties. So that means there's 91 different elected prosecutors. And obviously they have deputy prosecutors um, in their jurisdictions. And so our first job is to train them. They need to get continuing legal education credits every year and also hone their skills in as far as it pertains to subject matter, but also courtroom work. And so that's our first job. The second job though, or, or kind of second silo is, you know, with 91 different elected prosecutors, it would be impossible for them to come to downtown Indianapolis in the state and have their interests represented by 91 different people. So all of those elected prosecutors and their chief deputy are members of of our organization. And so we will interact with, you know, whether it might be the courts through the chief justice or, um, you know, the executive branch through the governor will interact on their behalf to represent their needs. And then obviously the last branch of government is the legislative branch. And so we will represent their needs with the Indiana General Assembly. And that might mean advocating on behalf of some bills, but it also could mean just being a subject matter expert, having you know legislators, whether it be senators or representatives, call and ask our opinion about you know a certain piece of legislation and what it would look like if it were to, to be the law in the state of Indiana. So you guys do a lot of stuff. Yes. <laughs> You're busy. Um, you know, and that's on top of the fact that you're a renowned national speaker and you go all over the country and even out of the country. You've been to, where did you go? Mexico? Uh, Mexico City. So um, Mexico does, did not previously have an automatic right to a jury trial. They didn't have jury trials at all. It was just trial by court um, or tribunal. And so when they enacted the um, constitutional right to a jury trial, then um, I was part of a a delegation that went from the United States to Mexico to to train their prosecutors. That's really awesome. Talk a little bit about your experience before you came to IPAC that um, really does set you ahead of everyone else and makes you an expert in the things that you're doing. Well, I don't know if I'm more of an expert than anybody else. Um, That's that's my opinion. Um, (laughs) I uh, have worked in two counties in Indiana. So Marion County is where our state's capital, Indianapolis, is located in in Marion County. And then Johnson County is a county that borders Indianapolis. I've been a deputy prosecutor in both of those jurisdictions, more time in in Marion County. Um, And there I wore a variety of hats. Um, I was a supervisor of 
um, some baby prosecutors. So as they were learning, you know, to how to do things in the courtroom, I supervised them. I've been a supervisor of domestic violence. I've been a supervisor of all the special victims. Um, so sex crimes, human trafficking, uh, child fatalities, um, domestic violence, both on a, a, a small scale and then the more serious cases, child abuse cases. Um, so uh, those are all of us sort of touchy subjects that lots of people don't want to um, kind of bathe and marinate in. Um, <laughs> but then I also spent time just in the regular felony courts. Um, I was a member of the homicide team or homicide unit and um, also tried, you know, burglaries, robberies, forgeries, things like that. So I, I guess outside of traffic crimes or drug crimes, I, I've done that. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Yeah, you've done a little bit of everything. That's actually um, where we met. I was actually a public defender when we first started knowing each other. And then eventually you were my supervisor in the special victims unit. So I have seen firsthand your uh, talents and skill sets and they're quite impressive. And anybody who has seen you in trial will say the same thing. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think it's cool because, you know, when I was an IPAC and even now when I'm trying to explain things to people, you just really wouldn't know the ins and outs of it unless you've actually done it. And so it's so important to have somebody in the state house who is testifying um, to the legislators who's actually been there and done it. Cause I've seen so many people get up there and they may have the best of intentions, but you don't know what you're talking about. So I think it's great. And so let's get into that because you had, I mean, it's not just you, I know that, but it was a very successful year, in my opinion, for victims in the state house. There were a lot of things that happened. And I would say the first one that we should talk about, which is probably the one that's garnered the most news because it is very newsworthy, is the changes in the statute to the uh, rape laws. So that was House Bill 1079. Can you just discuss with us what the changes were and what makes them a big deal? Yeah, absolutely. So over time here in my role at IPAC, I have stepped into being the primary person who testifies um, on behalf of Indiana's prosecutors in the state house. So for, for, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly, I'm there to see all of it. And House Bill 1079 is a real labor of love for a, a variety of, of legislators. I would say the first legislator to be mentioned, honestly, is Representative Arrington. And Representative Arrington was not the noted author of House Bill 1079, but she is a um, representative who, you know, this was a passion project of hers for several years. And she really worked hard on trying to find the right language that would get people to recognize and understand and feel passionate about the need for a change in the law in Indiana. And the person who did author House Bill 1079 is Representative Nagel. And um, she offered, authored a version of this bill in, for two sessions in a row. But even Representative Nagel says this project was started by Representative Arrington, who is a co-author on the bill. So Representative Nagel, Representative Arrington, and Representative Shibley are three notable women in the Indiana General Assembly who really took a look at what's going on with the law as it stood now, and then how does that play out in the courtroom? And the way the law is that's currently on the books until July 1st when the new, um, when the new statute will um, take effect is the, for us to prove that a rape has occurred, there must be some sort of physical force of some kind. And, um, you know, obviously when you look at the words on the page, and it's requiring physical force, there are lots of things that victims can do to indicate this is not something they want to have happen to them. And over the course of dozens of years, the courts of appeals have held that there are actions that make it really clear that a victim doesn't want a, a, a rape to occur. And so the needle had started to be moved to where it didn't need to be a punch to the face. It didn't have to be a, um, a, a, an act that was outside of the intrinsic violent nature of a rape, because obviously a rape by its very nature is violent, but there didn't need to be like this additional, um, you know, severe battery of some kind. But the problem is when the courts are moving that needle and the code doesn't match it, then as a prosecutor, if I'm going to stand in a courtroom and say, I promise you it's legal to find this guy guilty of this rape when the victim is you know, crying or, or struggling to hold her clothing, you know, her knees together, or her, her pants up or something like that. I promise that it's legal. It's difficult for a jury to believe that. And as a victim, you know, I don't presume that victims are combing the code books to mm -hmm. determine 
Um, you know, is this something I should report? But but we are cognizant of like what what does our law look like, or what's the what does my state care about? And if there's any thought process in your head that the state might not feel like what happened to you is a crime, then that's very um, shaming for a victim, and it doesn't create a, a circumstance where they're likely to report. So. For Representative Nagel, you know, she was looking at what's the status of the law in case law and how can we get the code to match that so that each individual defendant and each individual victim has equal protection under the law. When we walk into the courtroom, everyone knows what's legal and illegal. And I have to also tip my hat to um, Representative McNamara. Representative McNamara is the chair of the House Courts and Criminal Code Committee, and she was the chair of the summer study session that looked at the rape law. And at the time, people were wanting it there to just be a definition of consent. That's what that's what the hope was. Let's just define consent. Um, but I had looked through and combed through all of the states that have done that. And there are plenty of states where we've just defined consent or they've defined consent, but they haven't made different penalties or haven't made it more easy for a prosecutor to prove that this was an act that didn't have consent. Um, and so I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but you can define consent and it still be really difficult to prosecute a case. Really, And so um, Representative Nagel became pretty convinced that defining consent wasn't actually going to help anybody, that you could define consent, but, it, but there might still be questions there. What, what she wanted to do was not just give us a definition to work with. She wanted to make sure that sex without consent was illegal. Um, and so, you know, that was the route that she took. So after July 1st of this year, um, the early language that indicates as long as it is clear to the defendant through, um, you know, verbal, physical actions that I'm refusing what you're doing, then it is considered to be rape in the state of Indiana. And that's a big deal um, because just like you said, so much of sexual contact, even if it's not um, an assault, is nonverbal, right? Like so, not very often are you there to sign a contract before uh, you get into things. But um, I mean, some of us maybe, but mostly not. Um, but also, I think it bears importance to, to discuss a little bit about the trauma responses of victims. And so I always tell everybody, you know, everyone likes to sit and play armchair quarterback and be like, well, I would have done this, that, and the other. And of course, that's not true. And we never know that. And the fact that trauma causes people to respond differently. Can you touch on that just a little bit and how sure. that um, affects how this that it's good thing for this law to be passed the way it was because of that? So we like to say that a victim's number one responsibility is to survive. So it's not actually to reject your actions. It is to live. And it is very common um, if you have limited strength or limited ability, um, size differential, it is very common rather than to meet aggression with equal aggression, it's, it's normal for women and children to de-escalate. So if you're at a 10 in anger and aggression, then your victim will likely meet you with like an eight or a seven, because we're trying to get you down to, to that level. Um, that can mean appeasement in some way, shape or form. When that happens, it is unfortunate um, because a defendant does have to know that what he or she's doing is illegal. That's just a tenet of law. It, it's not just rape law. It's every single crime out there. The defendant, the person who's accused, has to know that what they're doing is illegal in some way, shape, or form. However, there are actions that aren't a punch to the face, clawing, you know, pulling a gun on someone. There are all kinds of actions that we can do in small ways that make it clear that this is not something that we want. So for instance, if I'm crying, that's clearly not a consensual act. If I am putting my hand on your chest to kind of put space between us, that's clearly not a consensual act. So we don't require victims to fight back. We don't require them to meet aggression with the same level of aggression. We just are now going to look at what are the movements and actions that you made in the moment that when a, a perpetrator would view them would say, this is clearly not desired. That's so it really, I mean, it, this law is so great. And I know that there are people who are like, oh, it's not enough. 
But what would be your response to that? Like, this is a huge win. What would you tell those people who are saying it's not enough? You know, if we could go back to the beginning of, you know, the United States and the colonies and, you know, create law in a vacuum, then we might be able to come up with things that are perfect. But when we are a society that has to evolve over time, then obviously we're going to have to deal with what's the case law that's out there, what are the statutes that are out there, and how do they all come together? And so what I need everybody to understand is we're not writing a rape statute from the beginning. Mm -hmm. We are amending a rape statute in light of decisions that have come down from the courts of appeals. And so there's a decision out there, it's called Jenkins v. State, and it says, while the victim must resist to a degree which would indicate that the act is against her will, force need not be physical or violent, but may be implied from the circumstances. Physical resistance is not required if victim is in fear of bodily harm. So we have to create amendments to the code that are going to follow along with what's already out there in case law. And it does say that there has to be something that indicates this is against her will. It is unfortunate when a rape occurs and it's because the woman was frozen in fear and could not say or do anything. That is a breaking and entering of the senses. She will have the same difficulty assimilating to, you know, normal emotions, normal responses to um, trauma, fear, triggers, as anyone else with any other type of rape. However, in the criminal code, we do have to come back to, does the defendant know? And so it's just hard for us because we're kind of standing in the middle. As a prosecutor, I have to care about what happens to victims. I have to care about how, well, I want, I like caring about, I don't have to, but I care about, you know, how are you, how are you absorbing what happened to you? How are you healing? But I'm also supposed to be mindful of what are the constitutional rights of a defendant? It's part of my job. And so I think for those who say this doesn't go far enough, I don't disagree that there are things that victims need. Unfortunately, there are things that victims need that sometimes the criminal code isn't going to be able to provide you because we have to meld together the rights of a victim and the rights of the defendant. And having a code, you know, a criminal code that says sex without consent is illegal is a giant step forward in Indiana. When moments ago we had a a law that said you have to be physically forced. Absolutely. It's very well put. And I like how you explained the history behind it because it makes so much more sense. And, you know, you and I both have had tons of conversations with victims and survivors about the the unfairness of the process and how it goes on victims. And that's absolutely true. And there's only so much that can be done about it. But because, you know, we live in a country where the defendant's rights are protected by the Constitution. And so that has to be taken into consideration. But I don't know. I think this this law is a huge, huge win. It's definitely a step in the right direction. And, you know, who knows what the future will hold. But for now, I mean, I'm just very, very happy that this happened. Is there anything else you want to mention about that law before we touch on some of the other ones? Yeah, I'd like to give a shout out to a couple of senators because I mentioned a, a group of female uh, representatives, but they were met in kind by some male senators. Um, so the sponsor of this bill, so when a bill moves over from the House to the Senate, then somebody there has to take control of that bill and shepherd it through. And the sponsor of this bill was Senator Mike Bahacek. Um, he cares very deeply about this bill. He took over from Senator Aaron Freeman, who was the sponsor of this bill last year. Um, both of those individuals cared very deeply about this bill. And the bill received a hearing from Senator Mike Young, who's the chair of the Senate committee where this was heard. Um, and, and Senator Young was instrumental in helping uh, shape the language of, of this um, of this additional um, piece of, to House Bill 1079. So I'd like to say that, you know, um, sometimes it feels like this is a women's issue and a women's issue only, and that's not the case. So in the Indiana General Assembly, the men picked up uh, just as much as the women did. And in fact, there was only one nay vote in the entire General Assembly for House Bill 1079. Wow. I'm not going to ask who it was, at least not on camera, but that's great. I mean, that says something in of itself, doesn't it? Almost. That's right. 
unanimous. And that's so great. And I'm glad you pointed out the legislative process process is long and difficult and so many different things can snag it on the way through. So it's um, sir, it's amazing that it went through almost uh, unanimously there at the end. Um, let's move on to House Bill 1137, which was a change to protective orders. And clearly I'm not gonna go through and read the legalese and any of these provisions because our listeners are gonna be like, thanks, Shaughnessy, really, no thanks. Um, but the idea on that one basically is that, so before, if you got a protective order and we're talking about civil protective orders versus criminal no contact orders, and I think a lot of people don't know that there is a distinction between the two, but a protective order lasts two years. And this statute says that, correct me if I'm wrong, that it's going to, the protective order can be in effect indefinitely rather than just the two years if this is the victim that the of the crime that the perpetrator has been um, convicted for, put on the registry for. Is that right? Yeah, so there's a little bit of nuance there. You can go and get a protective order without a criminal charge having been filed. But you can also have a protective order that's supposed to keep the parties separate after a conviction. Mm -hmm. So after an individual comes out of prison or let's say he or she's on probation or home detention or something like that, then that's a different type of protective order. And that's what we're talking about here. So in the ones where um, circumstances where we have a defendant who's been convicted of a crime against a victim, um, there are certain individuals who are then on the lifetime sex offender registry. If you are on the lifetime sex offender registry, then your uh, victim will now have a protective order that continues indefinitely um, without requiring them to come back every couple of years and ask for it. And there was an individual who um, I, I will not name her. I don't think she would mind being named, but I would allow her to do that herself, who came and testified in both chambers, um, both the House and the Senate, and um, was just really a remarkable witness to put a face on this. She had been a college student who was brutally raped. As not, I mean, of course, there's no other kind, but, um, but it, she was brutally raped by um, an a, um, apartment maintenance man. And every two years, she had to come back and request that protective order be, um, be you know, uh, kept in place. And when you come back, you have to come back in person and see each other. Um, and he was not objecting to the protective order. He was fine with it being um, in place, but he was making her come back every two years so that he could see her in person. Obviously, this was extremely detrimental to her ability to move on um, and was just another kind of sick and twisted game on his part. So, you know, all kudos to Representative Cook because he um, listened to her. She's a constituent of his and felt like that was appalling behavior and really um, wanted to make sure that he got this language right and protect people who, you know, a, a court of either your peers or the judge has already said you're guilty of this or you've accepted responsibility. Why are we forcing a victim to come back every couple of years um, and be placed in your presence just to be protected from you? That's amazing. I think that on its face, it may not seem like that big of a deal, but it absolutely is. Um, that was always a difficult, difficult conversation to have for me. I think we were prosecuting that even if we got the conviction, it's not going to last forever that no contact order. And so the fact that these are indefinite now takes some of that power of these perpetrators away to mess with the victims. So I think that's awesome. Yeah. And just a good example of, um, you know, sometimes we might feel like if th this is a small issue, I don't want to bother someone with it. It's just every two years. I mean, victims can be, um, can minimize their own struggles sometimes because of what they've been through. So this is just a really good example of this was bothersome to her and she made it known and it was really impactful. I mean, like you said, this seems like a small change in comparison to the rate bill. And I, I, I would guarantee that everyone who heard her story did not feel that that was small at all and felt very strongly that they wanted to help her and others like her. Kudos to them because I think it really will help a lot of people. Support for Survivors is sponsored by the law firm Cohen & Malad. Cohen & Malad attorneys have over two decades of experience helping sexual abuse survivors. 
We work through the civil court process to get justice and compensation that can help pay for resources needed to heal from your trauma and move forward. We are proud of the work we do in giving power to your voice. And now, back to our show. Um, the next one I want to talk about would be House Bill 1363, which makes some changes to the child exploitation and it's so-called child pornography, which of course we don't use that terminology anymore. We use uh, child sexual abuse material, but um, that's just the way it's it's uh, named in the code. Um, and it, it, there was a lot, like a lot of little changes to this. I'm not going to go through all of it. Just the I think the parts that are relevant to this conversation. One of them is that um, it's not a required element of the fence if the image isn't actually a child, but it's simulated. And so my guess there is that that's due to an increase in anim- animated images of child sexual abuse material. Um, when you think animated, you kind of can think um, comics or anime. And that's not really what, I mean, of course, this that would be scooped up by this, but it, that's not really it. Um, the Internet Crimes Against Children task force exists in a couple of different groups in Indiana. And they're this amazing. one, pardon? They're amazing, doing great work. They are. Um, and so they are doing great work. They are amazing. And they're really good at their jobs. And yet it's taking those people um, a couple of days sometimes to even determine if the image I'm looking at is computer generated or a live child. Mm-hmm. That is how real some of these images can look. And so some folks came down actually from the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. They are specifically sworn officers for Kokomo um, Police Department. And they came down and were able to disseminate, to actually pass around these images in the committee hearing to the legislators because it's not illegal to share it or it wasn't at the time. And it was impossible to tell if these were live children or not. That's how realistic it looks. And the reason why that's a big deal, because you could think to yourself, in fact, one legislator did say, well, you know, a lot of our concern is we don't want, you know, children to be um, perped on um, to create these images. So is this helpful in some way? I mean, he wasn't trying to be a sicko. He was really asking, like, Like maybe it'll cut down on actual abuse if they have these big pictures to look at. Yeah. But the thing is, before I testified, I, I anticipated like that same question, had that same thought. And there's a, some research that was done in 2007 by psychologists in the Federal Bureau of, of Prisons. And what they were doing is obviously they were looking at and combing together um, what are the responses of people who are in therapy. So these are very likely to be um, truthful responses because it's not a sentencing memorandum or something like that. It's people who are in therapy. And um, essentially 85% of the offenders who were in the Federal Bureau of Prisons for child pornography related offenses um, confessed or reported having committed acts of sexual abuse against minors, ranging all the way from inappropriate touching to um, what we would consider to be a forcible rape. So 85% is a huge majority. Um, We have to anticipate as much as those are truthful responses, there's a chance that they're even underreported because people don't like to admit (laughs) to burping on children for obvious reasons. Um, And so when those individuals were talking, they said, you know, listen, these pieces of material stoke the fire. And I'm very likely when I see these images to then act out and become a contact offender on a child. So it is very important. We don't want to have material that appeals to the sexual interests of a pedophile. So that's why it's important. Um, it's because they're, they know exactly what they're doing when they're creating these images. There's a reason why it doesn't look like a drawing. There's a reason why it doesn't look like anime. There's a reason why it looks real. It's because they know that that's what you're into. Mm-hmm. So um, this was a real labor of love uh, for Representative Karakoff, who represents um, part of, in his district is Kokomo. And um, unfortunately for Representative Karakoff, he got COVID <laughs> like right at the beginning of session. And so um, he, uh, you know, entrusted me to kind of watch and make sure that this legislation wasn't going to fall by the wayside as he got himself better, which I appreciated his trust. Um, trust in me. And, you know, I was glad to be able to help and get across the finish line. Um, I will say that there is a, this mirrors some of the language from the federal um, protect act, which is uh, an acronym. And um, so, you know, basically this is a huge step because Indiana will now be in, in line with um, federal law. Awesome. That is great. 
Um, I know that it, it does add in there another provision adds in a defense for DCS workers or attorneys if they have to view the material as part of their jobs, which makes sense, I suppose, because people maybe get scared if they have to do that. You know, you, you just want to make sure that uh, we're we're hoping to get the right people. We're not really trying to crack down. Um, obviously, you could be a DCS caseworker or a defense attorney and commit crimes. Um, but we don't want people to be committing crimes because they are investigating. So there was an expansion. Makes sense. Next, talk a little bit about the changes to the obstruction of justice statute. And this was a Senate bill rather than a House bill. It was 70. And there were a few substantive changes. And I believe that these will be huge for domestic violence cases. Because it looks like it's basically when a person tries to get a witness not to participate in legal proceedings, essentially, which is something that is dealt with in like 95% of domestic violence cases, which, which we have seen for many years. Well, it's funny, actually, because that's act- what you just described is the only thing that used to be illegal for obstruction of justice. So if I just got you to not show up, mm-hmm. then that was obstruction of justice. This was carried by Senator Kreider. Senator Kreider, a few years ago, um, actually with your help, Shaughnessy, um, he w- really took a look at the rape kits and whether rape kits were being processed in a degree that was timely and helpful to victims. And by virtue of his work in that front, he really you know, had a soft spot for the issues that women and children go through when they are victims of these sensitive crimes. And so it's not surprising that Senator Kreider would carry a bill like this. But it used to be that if I were um, accused of a crime and I would just keep you from showing up, then you, the state could file obstruction of justice. But what if I appeal to your love for me right. or your guilt and I get you to show up, but you lie for me? That didn't used to be obstruction. What if I get you to show up and you just don't say anything at all? Or you're like, I don't remember. That wasn't obstruction. So essentially what happened is if the definition now matches, if you show up and you are giving untruthful testimony at a tape statement, a deposition, any other kind of hearing, well, now it is obstruction of justice. So it more adequately mirrors what we see um, and closed a loophole. And you're right, it is helpful in domestic violence cases, but it's also helpful in child abuse cases Mm -hmm. because any crime that occurs between individuals who know one another, where there is a bond of any kind, then the potential for obstruction of justice is huge. Absolutely. That's really great. feels like it's going to pave the way and take, because there are so many times and it's like, okay, this is obviously what they're doing, but it just doesn't fit into the statute and we like to charge it that way, but you know, you can't. So I think that this should be really helpful for prosecutors to be able to crack down on some of that. Um, the last provision that I wanted to talk about are the changes to the human trafficking code. It seems like it cleans up the language a little bit and also increases the penalty level, if I'm not mistaken, from a level five to a level four, which obviously is a big deal because level five just doesn't carry a very stiff penalty to it. And then it looks like they modified the definition of protected person for purposes of the admission of a statement of videotape of someone who's less than 14 at the time of the offense, but less than 18 at the time of the trial. So I think that'll be extremely helpful in human trafficking prosecutions. You know, we've had a little bit of a history with the human trafficking language when it was first passed by the General Assembly back in, when was that? When we had the Super Bowl, was that 2010, I think? I can't remember. It does not matter. Um, but Earlier than that, it was maybe <laughs> 06 or 07. I have no idea, sadly. The reason I bring it up, though, is that we had no human trafficking laws at all on the books prior to hosting of the Super Bowl. And so the Indiana General Assembly was like, okay, we got to get something done. And they did. But what we had seen was that the language that was in place just wasn't cutting it over the course of time. So back in, I think it was 2018, the um, language was changed drastically and it was an improvement, but of course, you know, as time goes on, 
and we're, you know, using these statues of practice, we're seeing that things need to be cleaned up here and there. So it looks like they cleaned up some of that language within that newer statue and also increased the penalty. And then it also requires um, law enforcement agencies to report human trafficking investigations to the attorney general within 30 days after an investigation begins. That's new. And I believe that it probably, I think that the attorney general has really amped up their efforts in terms of combating human trafficking within the last few years. And you may not know this, is there any connection between what they're doing now and the changes they made in the office with that new provision? Did they ask for that? Nope. No, the attorney general did support Senate bill 155, which again was carried by Senator Kreider or authored by Senator Kreider. Um, No, there's not a change based on what they're doing in the office, but there was a thought process that human trafficking is going to occur sometimes in small kind of lower level, small scale things that are occurring maybe in the rural counties, but it is also really likely to occur in major metropolitan areas or border counties. Mm -hmm. And so there was a thought process that, you know, if you have an, a one statewide agency that's maybe keeping track of this, Mm -hmm. that we would be able to identify these traffickers because it's, you know, it's the same as like a serial killer. If you could have good communication between neighboring law enforcement, then we would identify serial killers more quickly. Well, this isn't that different. If you're human trafficking on any scale above just, you know, um, hiring out your wife, then it is a serial um, event. And so there was a thought process. Um, I think that language, as much as this was carried by Senator Kreider, I think that language actually came from Representative McNamara. Okay. Carried um, House Bill 1081, which mirrored this language in the House. And what she was hoping for, because she comes from around Um, Evansville area. So she's down by Kentucky. She -hmm. wanted to make sure that, listen, if there are things that are occurring in my area, um, in my county, and then a neighboring county, and then another neighboring county, wouldn't it be more likely for the attorney general to start keeping track of that and recognizing trends, maybe offer some assistance, give you a heads up that you're, listen, your neighboring county has a case against the same guy or um, a known associate. So kind of can track those patterns. So it was a really good idea on her part to just kind of make sure that somebody's paying attention to these folks so that we don't have one person who's imprisoned and then he's just passing the business off to somebody else in a neighboring county and we have no idea. Some of the language too that was tightened up, it's not a defense that the victim consented. Um, That's extremely helpful in human trafficking cases because we have victims who believe they are consenting to the behavior because they are receiving some kind of benefit or because minimizing the harm to yourself is a way to survive, right? Right. So that happens a lot that, um, and and Shaughnessy, if you haven't told anybody in your podcast in her previous life was a human trafficking prosecutor. So you know more than anybody how that is super common for the victim to believe, you know, this isn't a crime, I consented to it. So it is now in our code. It is not a defense that the victim um, consented. And then some of the language that was tightened up, we used to say benefits in some manner, another person. So I could offer you a benefit, but the way, because it said benefits in some other manner, we actually had to kind of allow that to happen. Like the benefit had to go through now. It's just, it's a crime. If I just offer it to you. So, um, some of our language, we just made it to where we don't have to actually sit around and wait for some things to occur. The second that you make an offer to someone, the crime has now occurred. The protected person stuff is actually a really big deal. Many states, if not most states, have protected person statutes on the books. And essentially what they are is they protect children who are going to be overly traumatized by having to testify in the presence of their perpetrator. Um, it protects them from having to do so if there are some reliable out-of-court statements, like a really good forensic interview, or maybe some of the initial disclosure outcry statements to mom or something like that. There are some hoops we have to jump through um, because obviously we, we still have to protect the defendants, right, to face his accuser. But it used to be we might have a crime that was committed against a, you know, a child who was 13 years old and six months. And, you know, if we are now at the time of trial and the child is 14 years old and six months, then they no longer could avail themselves of that statute, even though they have the same 
emotional trauma that they had a year ago when this was committed. So essentially uh, um, what Senator Kreider and Representative McNamara said is if you're still a kid, if you were less than the age of 14 at the time of trial and you're still a kid and the state can jump through all these hoops to show it's not the normal level of trauma, it's an extreme level of trauma for you to do uh, to undergo this live testimony, then you can still avail yourself of this statute. It's not for a victim to have to know or point out. Prosecutors are aware of it. We get trained on it. And so it's for us to know like, okay, this circumstance has happened. So victims, you don't have to step up and say, what is it I'm supposed to know about this? It just means for prosecutors, when we have someone who's a, who is still a child and is has this extreme amount of trauma, we can still protect them even though they're above the age of 14. That's incredibly helpful. I think that we're lacking behind sometimes other states in terms of protection for our victims. And those, it's, it is, it's so incredibly difficult for them to keep putting them through that. So anything we have that is going to help um, minimize that is always going to be great. And uh, to go back to not a defense that the victim consented. Yes. I never had one human trafficking case where the victim thought that they were a victim. They just don't identify as that. It's part of the grooming process of the offenders of the traffickers and they're damn good at it, unfortunately. And so it takes a long time, if ever, for some people to, to identify that way. And just like you said, I think part of that is defense mechanism, um, wanting to think that they're in control when unfortunately they just aren't. And then to the, communication between different jurisdictions. Of course, I always first think of Ted Bundy, if they had been communicating, that was a long time ago, obviously, and technology was not so great, but if they had communicated, but you know, even within the last couple of years, we've talked at length about the um, film on Netflix called Unbelievable, where again, if there had been better communication with between some of the law enforcement agencies, then perhaps that would have been knocked down real fast. So having one agency actually keeping track of it throughout the entire state, I think will be a game changer for combating that. Yeah, um, we hope so. And I, I should say too, immense you know, gratitude to Senator Kreider because he is always interested in these. But you said we lag behind in Indiana. The Yaman's work of Senate Bill 155 was Representative McNamara. She carried it in the 2021 session as a House bill. Um, and carried it again. Her version of it this year was House Bill 1081. Representative McNamara just said to her staff, take a look at our criminal code, compare it to other states and tell me where we're behind. So, you know, this was not a bill that IPAC put together, shopped around to someone and said, Let, let's let's figure this out. Let's find a home for this. And I, actually, every bill that we've talked about is a bill where a legislator was either approached by um, a, a law enforcement agency in their community or a constituent, um, or just thought to themselves, I have, an, I have a desire to have Indiana, you know, be on the forefront of some of these things. And so there was a bill last year, there was a summer study commission or a summer study um, committee that Representative McNamara was carrying on both fronts. And, you know, she was looking around at what are the, what are the things that we could do? And that's where she came up with the protected person portion of what ended up being Senate bill, I think 155. And I will say part of the reason that Representative McNamara cares so much about human trafficking is that she is um, an educator. And so Mm -hmm. she's taken these disclosures and I remember testifying in the summer study committee and just saying like, you, you can't take these disclosures and not have it matter to you. And so for those people who are listening that are thinking, I can't believe I've just listened to an hour of an update on the legislative code. Um, what I'd really like for people to take away from this though, is that this wasn't a bunch of red tape of talking to a government agency who would then go on be, you know, IE IPAC who would go on to someone else and speak on your behalf. These were individuals speaking to their legislators and their legislators gave a damn. And they really, really did. They cared so much about getting these bills across the finish line. And it wasn't just to, you know, get some red, there's no blue ribbon at the end. I mean, obviously they feel gratified, but this bill on human trafficking and protected persons was very personal for Representative McNamara, she did carry it across the finish line in the House um, on behalf of Senator Kreider. These issues have become very personal for them. So if you have these things happening in your life where your life is at a disadvantage because of something that has happened to you that the code doesn't touch or it doesn't touch adequately enough, 
um, it is enough for you to make a call. They do listen. They do care. They want to do the best that they can. And yes, it helps to talk to someone who is your representative, but if you can't get in front of them, then take a look at any of the members that I mentioned, any of the representatives or senators, because they would be happy to um, come to Indianapolis on a regular basis to make your lives better. It's a lot of hard work on their part. So having a face with that issue, just extremely helpful. It, you, you all are going to say it better and get them to want to care about your issues way better than I am any day of the week, because it's really happening to you. I'm just delighted to be able to do research and, and kind of, you know, be able to say for a particular legislator, yes, this is the right way to write this, or this is the way another state does it. Um, but that human face really made the difference and is probably why this session was so great for victims. Well, thank you for pointing that out. And if listeners haven't already picked up on it, you've mentioned two or three of these names multiple times, and they keep getting mentioned over the course of time because they are the ones who are truly fighting for victims over and over every session. And we're extremely grateful to them. But just to be clear, I want to make sure that we definitely are thanking representatives Arrington, Nagel, Shibley, McNamara, Kerkhoff, Cook, Senators Bohachik, Freeman, Young, and Kreider for everything that they did this year to make these things possible. And I also want to give a shout out to Senator Mesmer, because in the past he has been instrumental as well in getting more protection for victims. So I love that uh, you wrapped it up that way because it truly is like you're watching it work the way it's supposed to work, where these representatives and senators listen to their constituents and they cared and they did something about it. Yeah, you could just feel like a cog in the wheel and feel like nobody's listening or, or nobody cares or, you know, I'm not here to stand in the winner's circle and none of those red representatives or senators are here to stand in the winner's circle for anything like that. They were just honored to be able to do something to make a difference. And, you know, you can already tell Representative Nagel and Senator Freeman are asking a lot of questions about news stories that pop up about um, sexual assault cases and sexual assault victims. And it's because they've already cared before. So now they feel immersed in that environment. Representative Nagel, Senator Kreider, their names are gonna keep popping up. Um, you know, Senator Young really does try very hard to make sure that um, whatever language is gonna come out of his committee is something that will work. Mm-hmm. That's really what he's looking for the most is, um, he, you know, a lot of times it looks like he's trying to poke holes in things, but he's doing it for a purpose. He doesn't want us to spend time passing things that aren't going to work in practice. So he is poking holes in it so that, you know, you know, steel sharpens steel. So I can go back to the drawing board and try to, um, you know, show him, well, this, if you use this word, this is what it'll look like. If you use this word, this is what it will look like. Yeah. I think it was a really gratifying session for victims. And I feel really lucky to get to work in close proximity with people who care so much about their constituents. It, it, um, you can feel really tired over there and like, it is any of this matter and watching the sausage get made. Um, but I'm really glad you mentioned Senator Messmer because he is the Senate majority leader. And so, you know, these things aren't going to happen without Senator Messmer taking a good view of it. He knows every bill that's on the floor. He knows all, all everything that's going on and, and is able to speak intelligently about all of it. And then the speak the um, Senate pro tem is Senator Rod Bray, who is from my home jurisdiction, my uh, neighborhood that I grew up in as a kid. And he's extremely thoughtful. He is, um, you know, asks all the right questions. And so there are people whose names don't even get to appear on pieces of paper who are pushing ideas through and making sure we're doing our jobs correctly. So um, it's just wonderful when it all comes into place like that. Absolutely. It's certainly refreshing and comforting to know that there are people over there who care and trying to do their best by their constituents. So we end every show these days with three questions. So I'm going to ask you. You're like behind the, is it, are you like behind the actor's studio or inside the actor's studio? I'm the new James Lipton. I don't know if no one. (laughs) Okay. Question one. Yeah. What does courage mean to you? Vulnerability expand? Um, Well, it's difficult to be the person who doesn't have all the answers, to be the person who um, is asking someone else for help, who is opening yourself up to criticism or ridicule, or just having them um, see 
terrible things that have happened to you and not judge you by them or view you solely in that light. So being truly who you are and asking someone for, for help while standing in that potential fear or shame is extremely courageous. It's very well said. Um, what is the best piece of advice you have ever gotten? Oh, um, I, well, I'll just say kind of maybe as a lawyer, because that's kind of the, the hat I'm wearing to be on your podcast today. I would say that, um, the best, and I don't know if I was given the advice or if I gave myself the advice and then have dispensed it to other people. Um, but most attorneys, their clients get to choose them. And, uh, when you are representing the state victims, don't get to pick their prosecutors. So I would say I always did my job and have recommended to others to do your job in such a manner that someone would choose you if they could. Oh, I love that. That's good. Um, last question. What is one question that you wish more people would ask you? Well, I'm a single mother. So probably how can I help you? <laughs> would put maybe that one. <laughs> Uh, or I'm an avid reader. So maybe uh, what's a good book to read? Those would be maybe two good questions <laughs> to ask. Good recommendations. And you're a phenomenal mother of a really, really great kid. So <laughs> thank you. Um, anything else that you want to say for the audience before we sign off today? No, I just, um, I really hope that people feel gratified and inspired. And if you feel like um, there are things that didn't go far enough, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Other people are happy to kind of discuss where we are right now, but also don't feel like the door is shut to you. The central piece of legislation we talked about was 1079 elements of rape bill that took two years, just in that iteration to pass and several other years of, of filing a bill that couldn't even be heard um, to get it to, to pass. So putting these things on people's radars um, is really helpful. And I would encourage you to get motivated and to just speak out and you don't have to talk to an organization to do it. You can stand in your vulnerability with your shame and your fear and make a bigger difference than anybody who works for an acronym agency like I do. Absolutely. hundred percent agree. And in that vein, I want to make sure that people know they do want to make some changes and try to get in touch with their legislators, but they're not really for sure where to start. They're more than welcome to reach out to us and we can always point them in the right direction or hopefully facilitate some meetings for them. So Courtney, we're beyond grateful that you took the time to sit down and talk with us today. And you mentioned before that you are the lucky one that you got to work with those legislators, but I think that we're all the lucky ones because you are a true leader in Indiana and you're working hard to keep not just the kids, but all of the citizens safe. And I believe that you could do use your talents to do literally whatever you wanted in this world. And so we're very, very thankful that you chose to put those skills to work for the good of others. So thank you so much for all that you do. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you to our listeners. Please continue to tune in and share this podcast with others. Please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. Thank you for listening and we will see you next time.